Amen. You may be seated, and I invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to John's Gospel, the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We are entering into chapter 19, and as you're turning there, just by way of reminder of where we have been, uh, after the Upper Room Discourse, we followed Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane, where He prayed three times that the cup would pass Him by if it, po- if it be possible, And the Father did not answer because it was not possible. There was no other way to save sinners except for Jesus to be the perfect substitute, to go to the cross, to bear the penalty of our sin at the cross. After he prayed, he said, get up to his disciples. The hour has come. His betrayer was at hand. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Jesus is arrested. We saw John's description of that in John chapter 18 where Jesus is in full control. They come to arrest him, but he's the one who ultimately arrests them. He speaks, and they fall over. He says, you cannot take my disciples. Let them go free. He's in full control. And John wants us to see the glory of our Savior, even in the most uh, unglorious aspects, if you will. Um, In his death, in his betrayal, his arrest, his torture, Jesus is in full control control. Nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down. So he's arrested and he's taken to six different trials, three Jewish, three Roman. The first three trials are Jewish trials before Annas, before Caiaphas, and before the Sanhedrin. And we've looked at those in depth. And then um, Jesus is taken to Pilate because the Jews cannot crucify Jesus. They cannot kill him legally. They could stone him to death as a mob if they wanted to, but they didn't want to do that. They were afraid of the crowds, and they wanted to make sure that they would have Jesus crucified and killed by Rome as a seditionist. So they take him to Rome, and they say, this man claims to be king. And Pilate, the Roman um, officer, the Roman uh, uh, procurator over the entirety of Israel, is the one who says, I find no guilt in this man. Takes him into the praetorium. He uh, tries Jesus, and Jesus is innocent. Jesus speaks with kindness, with clarity. Remember, we looked at last week, um, Pilate asks him, are you a seditionist? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' question is, wait a second, that's too ambiguous of a question. Are you the king of the Jews? I am the Messiah, but I'm not a seditionist. I'm not trying to overthrow Rome. Which are you asking? And Pilate says, I'm asking on behalf of your people. They claim you're trying to overthrow Rome. Is that what you're doing? And Jesus says, no, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate says, okay, so you are a king. He says, yes, it's for this reason that I came to testify of the truth. Anybody who hears my voice receives the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? And he goes out to the crowd and he says, this man is innocent. That's the first Roman trial, the fourth trial in a total of six, but the first of the Roman trials. Pilate says, he's he's innocent. There's no guilt in this man. Take him, let him go free. The crowd then says, and we don't see this in John's gospel. We looked a little bit at it last week. The crowd then says, excuse me, Pilate, if he were innocent, we would not have brought him to you. We bring him to you because he's been preaching as far as Galilee in the north down to Judea in the south. He's been preaching his heresy. He's been preaching that he is a seditionist, that he is king. When Pilate hears the words, as far north as Galilee, he says, I know a way that I can get rid of this man. He's innocent. So send him to Herod, Antipas. He's he's under his jurisdiction. Send him to Herod. So the second Roman trial, John doesn't tell us about it, but it's before Herod. It's in Luke chapter 23, and Herod Antipas tries Jesus and finds him to be completely innocent. 
He's, he's you know, asking him, can you do miracles? Who are you? I've heard many things about you. Who, who are you really? And Jesus does not open his mouth. But that's Pilate's attempt to release Jesus again. Five times explicitly, seven times with implication, Pilate is going to declare Jesus is innocent. And this is another way. If he says, hey, take him to Herod, take him to Herod and let Herod try him, that would be being tried by ultimately Jewish customs and Jewish laws, and the Jews are not allowed to execute. So Pilate is very crafty here. I want this man to be punished because I want you, crowds, to be satisfied. But I don't think he's worthy of death, so I don't want to kill him. Take him to Herod. Let Herod be his judge. Herod says he's innocent, sends him back. The crowd's angry. The crowd says, okay, Pilate, we're ready to kill him. Stop sending him around all these places. If he was innocent, we wouldn't have brought him here. And Pilate says, okay, fine. I have a custom. We have a custom together, Rome and Israel. I'll release a prisoner. Let's exchange. I'll, I'll, I'll bring out one. I'm not going to give you a whole host of options here. I'm going to declare the, the exchange here. And he brings out Barabbas. Again, a beautiful attempt, a crafty attempt at trying to get Jesus to be released because he brings out Barabbas and he says, okay, you have an option. Who do you want to go free and who do you want to kill? He brings out uh, a, a murderer. Uh, we described him last week as a terrorist. He is really the terrorist back in that day. Do you want this innocent man or do you want a terrorist walking your streets? Who do you want? And he expects them to say, fine, you win. Just give us Jesus. Kill Barabbas. We don't want him walking our streets. And instead they say, we'll take Barabbas and you take Jesus and crucify him. It's at that point that we find ourselves in John chapter 19, verse 1. I want to read these verses, verses 1 through 16, where John is going to give us the last Roman trial that leads us to the crucifixion, the verdict that is going to be passed down by Pilate to the Jews that Jesus is to be sentenced to death. John chapter 19, verse 1, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to the crowd, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw Jesus, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You don't speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And as a result of this, 
Pilate made efforts to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are not a friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate then handed Jesus over to the crowd to be crucified. Father, every time we gather together to read your word, we just find ourselves, as it, as it were, just on holy ground and, and more so every single time. We come to these words and we see our Savior beginning to endure the physical torture that will point us to the fact that he will endure the spiritual torture in his soul on the cross. Father, every blow that he receives, every slap in the face, we deserve and it is because of us that he is experiencing these things. So, Father, give us the gift of illumination. Grant us through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. That we would feel as if Jesus died only yesterday. That we would feel as if Friday morning, before the city had woken up, it was just yesterday morning, and we were there, and we were a part of the crowd, and we saw and we heard. We're able to see the narrative of what's happening because of your Spirit writing it down through John. So help us to feel that we are there, to sense the tension between Pilate and the crowd, to, to smell the, the dust of the ground that's being kicked up by the angry mob, and to see our Savior bloodied and beaten, and yet, as he is being crushed, he is crushing death. As he is being conquered, he is conquering. May we see glory this morning as we study your word. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This text can really be divided up into three sections. We're going to look at three different people and what they do. First is Pilate and his attempts to deliver Jesus from being punished. And that's in verses 1 through 7. Then we'll see Jesus' answer in the praetorium, which is verses 8 through 11, or through 12 rather. And then the crowd's anger, which is verses 13 through 16. So we'll just divide it up in those three sections and see the, the way in which these three players, these three people groups in this account deal with one another. Let's look at Pilate's attempts in verses 1 through 7. Pilate is attempting to satisfy the crowd, not kill Jesus, but do something that will make them happy with the punishment that he's giving without him fully killing Jesus. 
So there's kind of an offer. There's a compromise that Pilate's going to make with the Jewish leaders. And it's in verse 1. Pilate takes Jesus and has him flogged or scourged. Pilate is saying this. He's not worthy of death. He's not worthy of any punishment. But since you, crowds, are not letting him go free, why don't I just beat him up a little bit? And when I beat him up, I'll hand him to you. You'll feel sorry. You'll know this man's innocent. And you'll let him go. And when he writes the words, when John writes the words, Jesus was scourged, John's readers would have winced. This is torture. This is torture. This is the cat of nine tails. Uh, if you know the, the Roman method of flogging, uh, there's descriptions of it. This is uh, 13 stripes against the chest and then flip the prisoner over and 13 stripes on each shoulder um, and that was given only to people who were involved in Rome. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 24, Paul tells us that he received this kind of beating, but it had to stop there at 39 lashes because he was involved with Rome as a citizen or some form of involvement in Rome. You could not be beaten beyond that 39 lashes. But that was only for Roman citizens. That was only for people who were involved in Rome in some capacity. It's not for Jewish citizens. It's not for people who have no connection with Rome. So most often we think that Jesus had 39 lashes. The reality is he probably had far more than that because there was no amount, there was no number that was legally given for somebody who was a Jew, a commoner. We're told in the history books that two soldiers would do this work because one would tire out. So they wanted two soldiers torturing the prisoner because they wanted the full force of what was happening to beat the prisoner up, and most prisoners would die by this method of torture. Their bodies reduced to hamburger meat. Their bodies ripped open, blood everywhere. History books tell us that you could see muscle, you could see bone, you could even see vital organs, because these torturers were adept at what they did. Now, you know that I believe that Jesus is terrified in the Garden of Gethsemane, not at all because of the physical aspect of what he's about to experience. I don't think that he is thinking at all about the physical torture he's going to go through when he cries out, is there any other way? When he can't stand up, when his knees buckle and he falls over and he sweats drops of blood and he's in anguish and he says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Jesus is not thinking about this moment. I don't think that Jesus is caring at all about what's going to happen to him physically. He's looking at the fact that he's going to drink the cup of his father's wrath. So as we talk about the physical aspect, please see through it. I don't want to bring up the physical just to say, here's what happened physically. And, and isn't it so sad? Isn't it so awful? And, and, and poor Jesus. And, and isn't it terrible what he went through? I want you to see through that, to see this actually did not mean anything to Jesus. Jesus is terrified of what's behind this, what he's going to experience on the cross, the wrath of God, drinking the full cup of the Father's wrath in our place. But we do need to mention physically what he's going through. And we need to mention it because of several different things. Number one, through all of this, Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent. So you need to see in your mind what Pilate is allowing Jesus to go through, even though Pilate knows he's innocent. 
And then number two, Jesus is about to speak to Pilate in the praetorium, but you need to have in your mind what Jesus has just gone through, what he would have looked like as he's speaking with Pilate. Jesus could have died in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, my soul is grieved to the point of death. I could die here. And nothing had happened yet. I think it's a miracle. It's amazing that Jesus, in his strength, gets himself to the place where he dies on a cross. He could have died here. He could have just laid down on the pavement, blood everywhere, and lying in a pool of his own blood, he could have just said, that's it. I can't, I can't survive this anymore. But he's going to get up. He's going to speak words to Pilate. He's going to walk all the way to Calvary. He's going to be nailed to a cross, and he's going to speak seven, seven phrases on the cross that he needed to get to the cross to be able to say. So you need to know how unbelievable it is that Jesus is going to do what he's about to do. And it's not just the, the whipping Verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They put a purple robe on him. These thorns are probably from a date palm, which are usually 8 to 10 inches long. We're told in the other Gospels that they took a stick and beat the thorns into his head. And contrary to what we normally see where we have a crown of thorns twisted together just around his forehead, just kind of a circle, um, most people would say that it was actually uh, kind of like a helmet. Think of a helmet, just a bunch of thorns put together to make a little cap and put the cap on. So not just thorns around here, but also on top of his head. And then they beat that crown into his head. Blood coming down. Thorns. Thorns are a piece of creation that are associated with the curse, right? Right? This is a beautiful picture, a horrific picture of Jesus bearing our curse. They're mocking him as king with the purple robe while he is king. They say, hail, king of the Jews. They slap him in the face. Meanwhile, Pilate is trying to figure out what am I going to do with this man? And so he goes to the crowd and he says, I'm going to bring him out. Verse four, I'm going to bring him out to you so that you can know I find no guilt in him. He's innocent. I, I'm beat, I beat him up, and I'm going to bring him out to you, and we're done. This is over. Verse 5, Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Behold the man. What he's saying is, look, look at this man. Look at this man. You really think that this is your king? You really tell me that this man is a threat to Rome? Look at him. Let him go. He's innocent. Pilate's going to carry that all the way to the cross. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. Do you remember when Jesus is crucified, there's a banner. It's called a titulus in, uh, over his head. There's a banner that was put on the cross. And do you remember what it said? It said it in three languages. You only had to write it in one. But Pilate wrote something in three languages just to make sure everybody knew why this man was dying. You remember what it said? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And what did the Jewish people say when they saw that? So change it, because that's not why he's dying. He's not our king. And they said, change it to say, he said he was king of the Jews. Change it to say he died because he's a seditionist. He wants to overthrow Rome. So he claims to be a king. But Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. He never claimed to be a king as far as a seditionist is concerned. He never claimed to want to overthrow Rome. He is your king. You're refusing him. 
And you're killing an innocent man. You're killing an innocent man. Behold, the man. I think that Pilate thinks, okay, here, this one, he's tried. This, this is the one that they're going to say, okay, we've had enough. Bloodlust is gone. This guy is beaten to a pulp. Blood is just flowing from his body onto the ground. This is it. We're done. But verse 6, so when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify, crucify. They're not done. Pilate said, okay, take him yourself. Crucify him yourself. That's Pilate saying, you can't do anything without me. Take him. You can't kill him. I find no guilt in him. Pilate knows they have no options. They cannot do anything without Pilate doing it. And he says, he's, he's innocent. Let him go free. Verse 7, the Jews answered, no, we have a law. We have a law. How convenient. The Jews are fine to bring up a law now, but they're fine to break all these other laws that they've already broken. This is just religious hypocrisy on full display. No, we have a law. Leviticus 24, 16 says that anybody who blasphemes is worthy of death. You have to kill him. Now remember, what have they done? They took him to Pilate and they knew we want him dead because he's a blasphemer. Pilate doesn't care about that. Pilate doesn't care if he's a blasphemer. He's not going to kill him. He's just a a crazy man. Um, So he's just going to let him go free. So they brought Jesus before Pilate with the charge. He claims to be king. He claims that he wants to overthrow Rome. And Pilate said, obviously that's not the case. So now they say, fine, we'll use our other one. This is really why we want him dead. He claims to be God and he's not. Now, originally, initially, if they had asked Pilate, kill him because he claims to be the son of God, I don't think Pilate would have cared. But now, when they say, we have a law and he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God, I think Pilate is is hearing words ringing in his ear when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And now he's wondering, who is this man? He's going to say that. Where are you from? Pilate has given several attempts, just even in this section, to try and release Jesus. But it's not going to happen because the crowds are not satisfied. We see how blind sin makes us. We have a law. We have to abide by that law, even while we're breaking 29 other laws. As we say a lot here, sin makes you stupid, right? Sin makes you stupid. And sin is stunningly deceitful. But before we just write off the crowd as being crazy sinful, we need to understand and own up to the fact that their sinful insanity is present in us as well. So, Pilate attempts, nothing happens. They just get angrier. Let's look at number two, Jesus' answer. This is verses 8 through 12. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, even more afraid. That means he already was afraid, and now he's even more afraid. He was afraid because he knew, I'm in trouble here. We've ha- we have a problem. Remember we said last week, he had already had three moments that had been taken during his tiny little reign as governor uh, to Tiberius to say, this man is a terrible governor. Those three moments, uh, those three events had already happened. And now Tiberius had just killed his best friend Sejanus for conspiring to kill Tiberius. So we have a problem. Pilate just wants to live. He wants to make it through this without it being taken back to Rome. So he's afraid, and now he's even more afraid. That that word afraid, that fear, uh, phobeo in the Greek, where we get phobia. He is at full panic. Um, Some translations 
use that word and they, they say to take flight. He wants to flee. He wants to run away. Why? Why is he even more afraid? Three reasons why he's even more afraid now. First reason, I think he has knowledge of what the crowd is doing. The crowd saying, hey, Pilate, remember the last time that you messed up regarding our laws of blasphemous things? Remember how you hung those shields with the face of Caesar on our temple walls? That's contradictory to our laws. And when we asked you to take it down because you were blaspheming our God, you didn't. And we took it to Rome and said, you need to tell Pilate to change what he's doing. And Rome scolded you for that. Rome said, you're on thin ice, pal. If you do anything else again, you're going to be in trouble. So remember the last time when we had our laws and you didn't go with what our laws said? Remember how you got in trouble, Pilate? Hey, we're in the same boat here. I think he was even more afraid because he realized we're dealing with something that I lost a battle with before. I don't want to lose again. Number two, he's even more afraid because he knows Pilate, or he knows Jesus is innocent. Pilate knows Jesus has no guilt. 18, verse 38. Pilate says, or 18, uh, in chapter 18, three times in chapter 18, this man is innocent. And at the end of verse 38, he proclaims it. I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in him. Chapter 19, verse 4. I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. Chapter 19, verse 6, take him yourselves and crucify because I find no guilt in him. Chapter 19, verse 12, when he's going to say he's guiltless, he wants to release him. As a result of this, Pilate made every effort to release him. And they're going to cry out and say, no, don't release him. He knows he's innocent. He doesn't want to kill an innocent man. But the third reason why he's even more afraid, I think at this point, is he's wondering, is this man truly a god? He just told me he's from a different world. His kingdom's not of this world. I think he's already been told by his wife in Matthew 27, verse 19, the dream that his wife had, where she said, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. I think he's wondering, are are the gods after me? Are they coming to judge me? He's even more afraid. So he takes him by himself, verse 9, into the praetorium again. And he said to Jesus, where are you from? Who are you? That's what he's asking. Who are you? Have you really come from God? You said your kingdom is not of this world. Have you really come from God? Who are you? Where did you come from? But Jesus does not answer. Now again, it's easy to read this as a textbook and just black letters on a white page and say he's in the praetorium and Pilate says, where are you from? And Jesus doesn't answer. But remember what Jesus looks like at this point. He's fighting to stay alive. He could easily just bleed out right there, fall over and die. And shackled, maybe shaking, maybe still struggling as he's in shock with blood pouring out of his body. He can't answer. He doesn't answer. Maybe because he literally can't. Maybe because he needs to save his energy for what he's about to say. Maybe because he knows, Pilate already knows the answer to that question because he already answered him. This is the reason I was sent. I've been sent from another world. So Pilate, I'm from another world. You know that. 
But here he is, bloodied, beaten. Maybe his eyes are swollen shut. Maybe he can't see. Even if his eyes are open, blood's pouring into them, and he remains silent. That's why Pilate says, verse 10, you don't speak to me? I know you didn't speak to Antipas. I asked Herod Antipas, did, you, did he talk? And Herod said, no, he didn't say anything. But speak to me. Herod didn't have any authority over you, ultimately to kill you, but I do. Speak to me. I, I want you to go free. I don't want to kill you. I have authority. I think Pilate's saying, help me out, man. Give me something that I can take to release you. And here's where Jesus answers. And I love this because if Jesus doesn't make this answer, I think Pilate continues to try and find ways to release Jesus. I think he continues, we're going to get this. We're going to let him go. But after Jesus answers this way, he makes a couple more attempts and then he's done. Because I think what Jesus is going to tell him is in essence, Pilate, let this happen. Let this happen. This is the plan. Let it happen. Jesus answers, verse 11, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, there is so much here. This is so rich. First, he answers. He has little to no strength, but he still speaks, and he speaks words of compassion and kindness. And he says, you would have no authority over me. That's a very courageous thing for Jesus to say to a man who literally couldn't snap his fingers and he would be executed on the spot. But he says, you have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. There's two main interpretations for this. What does from above mean? Most people would just take it to mean God gave you the authority. This is not outside the realm of what God the Father is doing. Though there's human evil in the world, God is in control of everything. And that's not an untrue statement. I think it's the easiest thing to see here because we love God's sovereignty. We love the fact that God is in full control even when evil is happening. And to that extent, D.A. Carson says something so helpful. I love this paragraph that he writes. He says, typical of biblical compatibilism. Compatibilism says God is 100% in control even though humans are 100% responsible and have free will. And it works together. There's a mystery, but that's why they're compatible. They work together biblically. He says, even the worst evil cannot escape the outer boundaries of God's sovereignty. Yet, God's sovereignty never mitigates the responsibility and guilt of moral agents who operate under divine sovereignty. While their voluntary decisions and their evil rebellion never render God utterly contingent. So they both work perfectly. But listen to his reason here. I love his logic. If God merely outwits his enemies whose evil sets both the agenda and the pace. So they do the evil, and God says, really don't like that, but I can make it work for good. If that's the case, then the mission of the Son of God to die for fallen sinners is reduced to a mere afterthought. Evil's happening, and God's going, man, I didn't plan for this. This is not what I thought was going to happen. Let's, okay, fix that. Oh, oh, it's still getting bad. Fix that. Oh, it's still getting bad. Fix that. Okay, we just have to send Jesus. This is just a mess. It's just an afterthought. But we know biblically, the sending of Jesus to die on the cross was not an afterthought. He was crucified before the foundations of the world. So, D.A. Carson goes on to say, if though 
God's sovereignty capsizes all human responsibility. So if God is forcing people like puppets to do the evil that they're doing, then it's hard to see why the mission of the Son should be undertaken even at all. Since it, it, in that case, there are no sins for which the Lamb of God must take away. So if God's in full control in a way that he's making people move like a puppet, then he's the one who's responsible for their evil. So this works some way perfectly in the mystery of God where humans are 100% responsible and have guilt and God is 100% sovereign and in power but doesn't move people like puppets. There's a way that it works and that's for another sermon for another time. But what Jesus is saying is there's authority from a different place. And so many people, most people take that you would not have authority unless it had been given to you from above. That from above most people take that to mean from God himself. Now, again, not an untrue statement. Romans chapter 13, God gives the government to people. God is the one who's in authority over the authorities. But I want to submit to you, I don't agree with that interpretation. Again, not an untrue statement, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. And I think the key is the phrase, for this reason. Jesus is saying, because of what I just said, the person who gave me to you has greater sin. So would it work for Jesus to be saying, because God is in control of this whole thing, Pilate, Caiaphas has greater sin than you? That doesn't work. That doesn't make any sense. To for this reason, because God is in control of this situation, Caiaphas has more guilt than you do, Pilate. There's no motivation there. Most people who interpret this just split this. They say, okay, God's in control. Pilate, you're not in control. God's in control. And by the way, Caiaphas is a greater sinner than you are. But they're connected with for this reason. I submit to you, the from above is from Rome, from Caesar, from the person above you. And I think that that fits much better with, number one, what Jesus is trying to say, but number two, grammatically, for this reason. You would have no authority over me, Pilate, unless Caesar had given it to you unless Rome had given it to you. You are in a tight spot, Pilate. You're not the one who's picking this fight. You were just placed in this country. Therefore, because this isn't your fight, Pilate, the person who actually is trying to take up this fight and get me killed, that person has greater sin. That's what I think this verse is clearly saying. Pilate, you were sent here by Rome. You were given authority to carry out punishment only because Rome gave that to you. You were not given uh, the authority or you were not out to pick a fight with me. You're not trying to get me killed. Pilate, do what you're going to do. You have to do your job. Do your job. But notice he says, he who delivered me, I believe that that's Caiaphas, the one who is out to get me killed, not the one who's going to be doing the killing simply because of their position. He who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So Jesus says, Pilate, you don't have a, a dog in this fight. This is not your fight, man. But you still are sinning. The one who delivered me to you has greater sin. Greater than what? Greater than your sin. You have sin. He has greater sin. You have guilt. He has greater guilt. You will have punishment. He will have greater punishment. But you didn't pick this fight, Pilate. 
There's such grace. There's such compassion in this answer. And remember, Jesus had just been beaten, flogged, tortured within an inch of his life, and he's able to speak words of truth in love with glory. So, because of that answer, verse 12, as a result of this, Pilate, and in the original, it's continually kept on making efforts to release him. But ultimately, he's going to remember Jesus saying, the authority was given to you by by Rome. Just do what you're supposed to do. This is out of your hands. And they cry out, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be king opposes Caesar. They go back. They're going back to. See, he, he claims to be a seditionist. It's not about son of God anymore. He, he claims to be a king. He wants to overthrow Rome. They have Pilate shackled in this problem. So they ask him, hey, Pilate, do you want to be Jesus's friend? Or do you want to be Caesar's friend? Whose friend do you want to be right now? And the answer is going to be, I'd rather be Caesar's friend and keep my life than be Jesus's friend and be killed. So Jesus responds in grace. The crowd is still angry, and that's number three. The crowd's anger, verses 13 through 16. The crowd's anger. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. He sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha, and it was the day of preparation for the Passover. Some people have a big problem with that chronologically. It was the day of preparation for the Passover, and they think, okay, Passover is clearly Thursday, so it's the day of preparation for the Passover day. So is this Wednesday? Where's our chronology? What's going on? Uh, Very clearly, let me just give this to you very easily. You know what this means. The day of preparation always only means it's the day leading up to the Sabbath, right? It's the day of preparation for the Sabbath. In fact, when the Jews come back to Pilate and they say, we need to get these guys off the cross, what do they say? They say, we need to break their legs and get them off the cross because it is the day of preparation. It's the day of preparation. If you go to verse uh, 31, they're going to say that. The Jews, because it was the day of preparation... It's the day before the Sabbath. It's the day in which you're preparing. When the sun goes down on Friday, we have Sabbath. So all John is saying is this is the day of preparation during the Sabbath or during the Passover, during the Passover. This is the day of preparation for the Sabbath during that Passover week. So it's the Friday of the Passover week. This is Friday of the Passover week. It's early in the morning. It's about the sixth hour, middle of verse 14. And that means it's six o'clock in the morning. He says to the Jews, now it's behold your king. It was behold the man. This is no threat. Now it's fine. I'll play the game. He's a king, but he's not the kind of king you think he is. He's not a seditionist. He actually is your king. He's he's from somewhere else. Behold your king. And what do they do? They cry out, verse 15, we have no, they they say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And he says, am I going to crucify your king? He's mocking them. And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Pilate says, can you seriously maintain that this poor broken man is a dangerous person, a rival to the emperor? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. The Jews hate Caesar. They hate Rome. But they're fine to use what they hate to kill what they hate even more. Pilate, in these verses, denies the heavenly king in order to maintain allegiance to an earthly king. 
the Jewish leaders claim to follow their heavenly king, but will ultimately claim allegiance to their earthly king so that they can kill their heavenly king. And they win. Verse 16, Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. He'll wash his hands, my blood's, his blood's not on my hands, and the Jews willingly take that. Fine, he's innocent. We're the ones that wanted him dead. His blood be on our hands and on our children's. He says, I wash my hands, I'm done. I'm innocent of this man's blood. What do we do with these verses? Again, these are not prescriptions. These are not, okay, so go and live like this. These are just descriptions. These are, this is a narrative. This is a story. But there's massive implication. So let's take the people that are presented here. Let's take them in backwards order. The crowds. The crowds. They say, we have no king but Caesar, and he makes all of the decisions for us. We're using him, and he's our ultimate allegiance. What is it for you? When you have the option of Jesus and this, Jesus or this, eh, we have no king but this. Jesus will submit to that. What is it for you that you say, you know what, that's my ultimate allegiance. That's what I ultimately want. That's what I'm fighting for in my kingdom of self. Pilate's ultimate allegiance is to himself, to saving his own neck. And the crowds know it, and they tap into it. They're going to ask him, whose friendship will you die for? This is the verdict that we all must make. So do you see your sin as serious? You're choosing, let's let Jesus die. We want him to be crucified so I can live in my sin. Who or what God is that to which everything else in your life surrenders? Is it your work, your job, your family, your friends, your success, your fame, your money, your recognition, companionship? What is it in your life that everything else in your life dies for to keep that going? Maybe you look at your life and you realize, just like the crowds, you're choosing yourself. Today is the day to say, I choose Jesus. Self dies, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. I don't have a will. I don't have a desire. I don't have an affection. All of my will, desire, and affection, that's just Jesus and what he wants. Number two, we saw Jesus before Pilate. You guys read it if you're going through our Bible reading uh, plan as a church. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, where Paul tells Timothy, press yourself into the mold of the way that Jesus handled himself before Pilate. You remember, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Jesus said something in a good way before Pontius Pilate. And Paul tells Timothy, do that. Be like him. So, how did Jesus handle himself before Pilate? What did he say? Just four statements. John 18, verse 34, he says, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? That's clarity, making sure, okay, are we talking about sedition? Are we talking about king of the Jews? Are we talking about Messiah? Who, what are we talking about? 18, verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. Truth. I'll tell you who I am. I am a king. Chapter 18, verse 37, Pilate says, are you a king? And he says, yes, you say correctly. It's for this reason that I've been born. It's for this reason I've come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then his last statement before Pilate in verse 11 today, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And it's because of this that the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Four sayings, 
gracious, truthful, clear, compassionate. If we were to sum that all up, I think that what Paul is telling Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 when he says, hey, remember that confession, do that, be like that. And what we're seeing this morning is that Jesus is committed to the truth despite all the lies around him. He's committed to the Father's will, even though it's ultimately going to cost him his life, and he's committed to loving everyone around him, even though they may be his enemies. So I think Paul tells Timothy, do that. Preach the truth, even though there's lies. Be committed to the will of the Father, even though it might cost you your life. Love everyone, even though they may be enemies. We saw that all the way in chapter 1 in 1 Timothy in our Bible reading. So we see Jesus' response, his answer. Finally, we started with Pilate. Pilate, will Pilate do the right thing or the popular thing? That's the question. Is Pilate going to do the right thing or is he going to do the popular thing? Is he going to fear God or is he going to fear man? The crowd knows Pilate's already used up all of his coupons with Rome. He has no more coupons left to use. This is it. And Pilate cannot have another riot. So they scream, crucify him. Luke chapter 20. 3, verse 23 and 24 says that their voices, the voices of the crowds prevailed. I tell my students a lot, peer pressure is a really bad thing because peer pressure is what killed our Savior. Ultimately, Pilate wanted to do the popular thing. Okay, I'll go with what's popular. I don't, I don't care what's right anymore. I just don't want to die and I want to make everybody happy. And it's easy to criticize Pilate, and it's right to criticize Pilate, but we have to pause and ask ourselves, have we ever chosen to do what was easy rather than what was right? Have we ever chosen to do what was popular rather than what was right? Sure, our actions are different from Pilate in degree, but they're no different from Pilate in kind. While we've probably never done something as awful as Pilate's doing right now, that's only because we've never had the opportunity. We do what's what he is doing all the time when we choose to do what's easy and what's popular over what's right. The root of Pilate's crime ultimately is cowardice. He chooses not to do the right thing because he's scared. So how do we fight this? We fight that fear with three truths. Fear God more than man. Fear God more than man and you will obey God. If God is pleased, it doesn't matter who you displease. And if God is displeased in what you're doing, it really doesn't matter who you're pleasing. Fear God, not man. Number two, love people. Truly love people. When we fear people, we don't actually love them. We can't actually love them because we are only using them for their approval. I just want your approval, so I'll do whatever I need to do for you to approve what I'm doing. When we fear man, we actually cannot truly love them. But if we truly love people, we'll do hard things, we'll say hard things out of love because we want God's approval, not man's. And finally, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. How do we fight cowardice? We believe the gospel. We understand the reality that our sin is deserving of death. Jesus took that punishment so we could be free from guilt, from shame, from the consequence of our sin because Jesus bore that consequence at the cross so we could be free. Understand the kindness of our God that leads us to repentance. So we look at the crowds and we look at Pilate and we say, how awful are they? We're never like them. But I think the hymn writer Horatio Bonner says it best in a beautiful hymn entitled, I See the Crowd in Pilate's Hall. He says this, I see the crowd in Pilate's Hall. Their furious cries I hear. 
Their shouts of crucify appall, their curses fill my ear. And of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. I see the scourgers rend the flesh of God's beloved son. And as they smite, I feel afresh that of them, I am one. Around the cross, I see the throng, I I see they mock the sufferer's groan, yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. T'was I that shed that sacred blood, I nailed him to the tree, I crucified the Christ of God, I joined the mockery, yet not the less that blood avails to cleanse me from my sins, and not the less that cross prevails to give me peace within. There's only one innocent man in this entire scene, and he's heading to a cross. Ultimately, Jesus didn't die because Pilate was weak. He didn't die because the religious leaders hated him. Ultimately, he died because you and I are weak and because we hated him. It wasn't the crowd who ultimately demands Jesus. It wasn't the Romans who ultimately demand Jesus. It's God who ultimately demands Jesus to be our substitute, to pay for our sins. And that's why the hymn writer says, not the less that cross prevails to give me peace within. As we stare at something so horrific, we find hope. We find peace. We find our hope in the substitutionary work of Jesus. So, where do you place your hope? Do you place it in the cross of Jesus Christ? Or do you place it in another king? that you would serve thinking that you'd be satisfied by it. This morning, let's together, let's place our faith, our hope, our glory in our Savior. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. And I just ask that as we close our our service, we close with an understanding that it is because of us that Jesus is going through these things. It's because of us because we love something more than we love him. It's because we desire something more than we desire him. And that's why he had to go to the cross to forgive us of our idolatry, our man-pleasing. May we glory in nothing but you. May we find our greatest hope and our satisfaction in Christ alone. And may may he be pleased as this morning we collectively together say, yes, he is our hope and he's our greatest love. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.